0: Daniel chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes, and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you you have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster under the whole heaven nothing has ever been done like what has been done to jerusalem just as it is written in the law of moses all this disaster has come on us yet we have not sought favor of the lord our god by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth the lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us for the lord our god is righteous in everything he does yet we have not obeyed him.
1: Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant, for your sake, Lord, look with favour on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift light about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, put an end to sin, atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will rebuild with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering and at the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him.
2: Well, in May last year, an economist at the University of Copenhagen released a paper that was entitled Religiosity and the COVID-19 Pandemic. And in the paper, Jeanette Benson made a remarkable claim. Using data on Google searches for 95 countries, she found that the COVID crisis had increased Google searches for prayer to the highest level ever recorded. More than half of the world population, she said, had prayed to end the coronavirus. And she said there was a recorded 50% rise in searches for the word prayer on Google. Her conclusion was this. In crisis, we pray. Now such findings brought um, attention, they picked up attention in the media. So um, comedian Russell Brand did a video about it. He mentioned ideas for how non-believers can pray. And perhaps this interest in prayer sort of indicates that even in today's secular society, a basic spiritual practice like prayer still has something to offer, even to those who wouldn't consider themselves religious. For Christians, of course, though, we know that prayer is the bread and butter of spiritual life. The reformer, John Calvin, famously said that prayer was the chief exercise of faith. It's one of the main things that someone with faith does. He or she prays. And yet I've never met anybody who feels like they pray enough. And I think most Christians are frustrated with their prayer lives. How can we pray well? How can we pray well? Well, today's passage has something to say to that. We're looking at the book of Daniel, and the book of Daniel is a book of two halves. Chapter 1 to 6 cover Daniel's actions in Babylon, a foreign nation. So Daniel is an Israelite. He's been taken captive and brought to a foreign land. And yet he has found favour and been elevated to a high position of power in the nation. He became an honoured civil servant. He had the ear of famous rulers. And chapters 1 to 6 show his life, his interactions um, with these rulers, his responsibilities. Chapters 7 to 12, however, are a little bit stranger. They consist mostly of fantastical visions and dreams that God gave Daniel directly. Because it was through these... That God is showing him what will happen to his nature, uh, to his nation, and the future beyond. So, we're in that stranger half of Daniel at the moment, we've made it that far. But, right in the middle of that section, we come to this chapter, chapter 9, which feels for the most part a little bit more down to earth. It's a unique chapter in the book, it's a record of a prayer. It's a long passage, it's an extended recording, and account of Daniel's prayer. So obviously this is something that is of importance. And this prayer is one of the finest in the whole Bible. And so here Daniel models to us what mature godly prayer looks like. And there's a lot we can learn from him. Now don't get me wrong though, this sermon and this passage isn't really about giving us tips and tricks Kind of life hacks for our prayer life. As we study Daniel's prayer, actually we will see that it says as much about Daniel himself, his character, as it does his actual prayer. And if we want to grow in this area, if we want to pray healthily, wisely, maturely, then we will need to be changed from the inside out. So as we learn from Daniel about our prayer life, most importantly, we will learn about how God himself empowers us to pray. So, what does a healthy prayer life look like? What is healthy prayer? Well, firstly, healthy prayer responds to God's word. So the chapter, if you look down, your Bibles do keep them open, down at verse one, the chapter begins with a historical note that it was the first year of Darius in his reign over Babylon. Now, Darius, it's crucial to see, wasn't actually Babylonian. He was a Mede, which was a rival power. And Darius had invaded Babylon and defeated it. He had overthrown Belshazzar, who was the ruler who saw the writing on the wall that we looked at a few weeks ago. But the important point is the Babylonians have been defeated at this point. The kingdom is under the power of the Medes. And so verse two, during that year, Daniel, whilst reading his Bible, had come across a striking discovery. He reads Jeremiah the prophet, the same Jeremiah that you and I have in our Bibles. He has access to that document. He reads it himself, and he comes across chapters 25 and 29. that Jeremiah had written to exiles in Babylon to comfort them. Jeremiah had originally said this, He had heard from God that the nation would be in exile under Babylon for 70 years. Then after those 70 years, Babylon would be defeated and Israel would be restored back to their land. So Daniel is, I don't know, maybe he's having his morning quiet time. He's reading Jeremiah. He comes across these passages and he does the maths and he realises It's been 70 years. Babylon has been defeated. The time is due for our exile to end. We're due a time where we can return to the land. Maybe the devastation of exile would be over imminently. And so look at his response, verse three. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in sackcloth and ashes and prayer and petition. Fasting sackcloth and ashes. He reads Jeremiah and he prays. Now, what is crucial to notice here is this. Daniel prays in response to scripture. Now, Daniel's a man who we've already said has special privileges. He's received direct visions, communications from God in a way that we do not have. (laughs) We do not have that, that opportunity or those particular sorts of revelations by and large and yet look what is what it is that actually stimulates and prompts this glorious prayer it is the scriptures it is god's written word through the prophets that prompts this prayer from daniel this heartfelt prayer it's also interesting that daniel prays at all i mean think about it he's reading a promise it's a promise from God. God is true to his word. He doesn't say something and then, then not complete it. If he's spoken, it's going to happen. So one might ask the question, why pray at all? I mean, look at verse three again. He's pleading, fasting, sackcloth and ashes. All right, Daniel, you're going to a lot of trouble here for something that's guaranteed anyway, one might think. But this would be to show a misunderstanding. You see, in the Bible, the fact that God promises something is never an excuse for inactivity. Quite the opposite. The guaranteed nature of the promise actually gives Daniel the fuel to pray for it. He says, Lord, you've said this. Please do it. That's how Daniel can pray. And prayers like this are not redundant. They're not a waste of energy. Actually, they do a number of things. Firstly, they draw us to God. They align our will with his. We want to pray according to what he said he will do. And actually, sovereignly, God uses our prayers as a means by which he accomplishes his purposes. But God's control and promises are never an excuse for inactivity in the Bible. Daniel understands this. So our first lesson in Daniel's school of prayer, if you want to call it that, is this. Use scripture to inform how you pray. Let the Bible fuel your prayers. And it makes sense that we would do this, doesn't it? If scriptures are God's words. Now, the the Bible is the primary means that God speaks to us. And so if we are to pray, it makes sense that we would respond to what God says because that's what communication is, isn't it? It's a back and forth. Have you ever been in a conversation where you've been chatting to someone, you've shared something, you've said a few things, and then the other person completely starts talking about something else? It's it's disruptive, isn't it? It kind of catches you off guard. You're like, am I inaudible? Are we speaking the same language? I thought I'd just said something. Communication is a back and forth. And so in the same way, it makes sense, doesn't it? That if God speaks to us, that we would, as it were, carry on the conversation and respond to what he says. Now, that's not to say that we can't just share with God the things that are on our hearts. He's our heavenly father. He loves to hear our prayers. He wants to know what is burdening us. But if he speaks to us, isn't it right that we should respond to him? So a healthy prayer life will be informed by what God says to to us in his word. And this is actually really freeing because a lot of people um, don't always know what to pray. It comes to prayer time and they don't know what to say. But if praying can be a response to God's word, then that frees us to just pray according to what we've read. Like Daniel, you can pray the promises of scripture God tells you he's going to do something. You can pray that in. You can say, for example, Lord, you've said that you'll complete the good work that you began in me. Please do that. Because I feel like I'm regressing in my Christian life and not progressing. You can say, Lord, you've said that you are working all things for good, but this situation is just so hard. Please work these things for good and help me to believe that you're doing so. Amen. Let your prayers respond to God's Word in the Bible. That way you can know what to pray for and you can be sure that you're praying the right things. Healthy prayer responds to God's Word. Secondly, healthy prayer is humble and we see that very clearly in Daniel's prayer. Large portions of it focus on the confession of sin and Daniel acknowledges this sin without any excuse at all. For example, look at verses 5 and 6. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Verse 7 We are covered with shame. Verse 11. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. And so on. Daniel's confession of his nation's sin is total. There is no self-justification, no excuses. And again, that's striking, given what God's people have endured. They have been in exile for 70 years They have been oppressed by Babylon. Exile and invasion in the ancient Near East was not pretty. Babylon would have committed what we would consider human rights abuses, war crimes. The Israelites had suffered a lot. But the truth is that as far back as Moses, God had warned the people of Israel that this would happen if they turned away from him, if they had rebelled against him. After all he'd done to save them, they had had fair warning God had been very patient, but eventually the promised punishment happened. And Daniel just takes it on board. He knows this. Look at verse 11. Therefore the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us. And Daniel just holds his hands up and he's like, this is on us. This is on us. Now, such honesty and humility is striking and it's refreshing because we live in an age of the non-apology. The non-apology, you know what I'm talking about. If a public figure gets called out on some misdemeanor, often they will try to deal deal with it in a way that still enables them to save face. Okay, the response may try to look humble, but they somehow avoid taking full responsibility for their actions. By way of example, Jamie Dimon, who was the CEO of the investment banking firm J.P. Morgan Chase, he once responded to the revelation that huge bonuses had been paid to the company's directors despite the fact that the government had just bailed them out from bankruptcy. They'd still paid these massive bonuses. And how did he respond? Well, with the immortal phrase, we know mistakes were made. Mistakes were made. I mean, these sorts of caveated apologies or non-apologies, they're commonplace, aren't they? I mean, we even use them ourselves, don't we? I'm sorry if you were offended. Sometimes that is used not as a way to own up to our um, guilt, but as a way of diminishing responsibility or covering over the cracks. But Daniel is not like that at all. His sin and the nation's sin is confessed and it is truly owned. There is not a hint of self-justification. Daniel knows who he is before God. He knows who his people is before God. And he's honest enough to admit it and beg the Lord for mercy. And so must we. You see, confession, true, open confession of sin is a crucial element of healthy prayer. But before we move on, let me just draw your attention to an important aspect of this humility that Daniel shows, and that is corporate humility. Daniel isn't just praying on behalf of himself, he prays on behalf of the whole nation We have sinned, he says. Daniel looks beyond just himself and he sees himself as part of a larger group, a larger whole, and he considers it his responsibility to pray on behalf of the whole, the whole community. The nation as a whole had turned their back on God. They have been judged as a whole by God. And so Daniel prays on their behalf. There is such a thing as corporate or collective sin. Not just acts of wrongdoing by individuals, but disobedience which marks entire groups, entire communities. This has been driven home quite hard to me as I've reflected on particular times um, in where I've seen sin happen in in marriages and families. There have been a few times in my life where I have seen someone, a a Christian, who I would respect, um, commit a really harmful sin, um, really hurtful behavior, something that just seemed obviously wrong, and do so repeatedly. And I've been perplexed by this, because I know that that person has been married to a really godly man or a really godly woman and I, I don't understand what's happened I, I sort of think well why why hasn't their spouse spoken up about this what why haven't they challenged this they've seemed to just let this carry on it's it's just confused me but what i ha- i what i never realized was that in some of these cases it's because the spouse as well as the original person is blind too to the issue neither of them can see what's going wrong. They're both blind. And this gets us to, I think, what is something important but often overlooked, and and that sin just doesn't affect individuals. It can actually hypnotise entire groups. Families, life groups, churches, even entire nations. You see, groups develop their own culture. Maybe one person models something and then others pick up on it, and over time reinforce that behaviour. So if one person models greed or materialism, the accumulation of material possessions and money, then perhaps others do as well. You can see cultures of bitterness in families and groups, cultures of unforgiveness, you can see contempt or neglect for certain types of people, even in entire churches. You see, everybody in the group does it. And idols are then mutually reinforced from each other, uh, with, with, within each other. And so, what Daniel shows us here is that godliness includes not just having an eye for ourselves, but for the larger whole. To identify ourselves so much with that larger whole that we take ownership, collective ownership, for the sins of the group. And where the whole has sinned, confess it on behalf of the group. If Daniel prayed for his nation, then the obvious application for us is that we should pray for the church the national church, the worldwide church, but certainly Grace Church we will have our blind spots. There may be areas in our church where we are corporately falling short of what the Lord requires of us. Now I've not got anything in mind, but if corporate sin is real then we have to be ready for the fact that it's possible we are doing something wrong and perhaps maybe even be blind to it. And so I guess I'm speaking to those of you who consider Grace Church your spiritual home, that you have a level of investment in it, or that you've been blessed by it. Um, Are you willing to take a level of collective responsibility, not just for yourself individually, but for the church? And if you become aware of something, please let the leadership know, but please pray for us. And will you do so in a way that expresses your investment in us as as a group? Not just saying, our oh, Grace Church has sinned, but we have sinned. And it's not that if someone else has sinned but you haven't done that particular sin that you are guilty for it in an ultimate sense. But are you invested enough? Do you identify yourself with a group enough to pray for it, to take ownership for it? To do so is to show the heart of Daniel. We must be humble enough to realise we may have cultural sins. And if we find them, we must deal with them collectively. Healthy prayer is humble. Thirdly, healthy prayer is God-centred. Now, as Daniel moves on in his prayer, what really stands out is his posture towards God. Just look at all the ways Daniel refers to God in the passage. Verse 1, he's the great and awesome God. He says, you are righteous, Verse 7. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving. Verse 9. The Lord our God is righteous in everything he does. Verse 14. There is a, an acknowledgement of God's greatness and an adoration of it. But notice also Daniel's chief motivation in his praying. The climax of Daniel's prayer comes in verse 19. Look at it. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name for your sake. Daniel's prayer is chiefly concerned with God's reputation. In the words of one commentator, Daniel's prayer is people-oriented, but God-centered. People-oriented, he does care about the state of um, the Israelites. He cares about them but he centres his focus on God's reputation, on God's name. His desire is that God is honoured. You see, in the destruction and exile of the Jewish people, God's reputation was on the line because Israel and Judah bear his name. God is associated with them because he's chosen them as his people. So if the people have been defeated, if they are in exile, if the city of Jerusalem is ruined, if the temple has been destroyed, what does that say about God? Now, on the east side of Manchester, there is the Etihad Stadium, the stadium of Manchester City Football Club. And Etihad is an international airline. It's really rich, it does well as a company. They sponsor Man City and their uh, Man City's ground bears its name, the Etihad Stadium. And you know, it's an impressive stadium. If you look on the outside, it's got the words Etihad Stadium right there on the exterior. Now imagine if the stadium went into disrepair from neglect, if the cleaners didn't turn up, if no one took any um, time to make sure everything was working properly, um, cleaning it, etc., And over time, the, the, the building becomes scruffy and dirty. Um, you can imagine maybe a few letters from Etihad fall off the E and T, you've just got I had stadium at the end. Um, what would such a site say about Etihad the company? I mean, it wouldn't be great PR, would it? It would be associated with ruin. Everyone who saw this unsightly mess of a stadium would think, oh, well, that doesn't say much about Etihad. Etihad would not be thought of in high terms in their minds. And in the same way, for the nation of Israel to be defeated, for the people to be in exile, in a sense it tarnishes God's name in the eyes of those who are looking around. The Babylonians or the Persians or the Assyrians could look at the people of Israel and mock God. What a useless God. He can't even look after his own people. The nation's in ruins. He can't save. What kind of God is he? This is a travesty for Daniel. So he prays, Lord, save us for your sake. Lord, don't let your name be dragged through the dirt like this. You see, Daniel is so passionate about God that to see him mocked is deeply painful, so he prays God-centered prayers, prayers that seek God's honor above all else. And there's much we can learn from this. We said the Lord's Prayer earlier, what is it that Jesus teaches us to say in the Lord's Prayer? He says, Heavenly far, Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That it, what that means is, Lord may your name be honored. This is just what Daniel prays, essentially. You see, it is painful for mature Christians to see Jesus' name, the name of God, dishonoured. So we pray that he would be honoured, that he would be cherished, that other people would glorify him, um, not ignore him or rebel against him. Often our prayers are like shopping lists. um, But the godly person's prayer will always reflect the heart of Daniel to see God's name honoured. So healthy prayer will be God-centred. Finally, healthy prayer hopes in Jesus. So we have the record uh, the record of, of Daniel's prayer. And he's interrupted mid-prayer, verse 20, by the angel Gabriel who appears and gives a response to this great prayer of Daniel. And Gabriel reveals to Daniel the future horizon. And we get this remarkable prophecy, what's known as the 70 weeks or the 77s in verses 24 to 27. Now, lots of scholars disagree on what the, what the nature of the prophecy is, but more, almost all scholars agree that it's the most difficult um, passage in the whole Bible to interpret, or at least one of them. So any conclusion I'm going to give is going to be tentative. But let me try an overview um, the main points of what happens in these verses. So Gabriel speaks of a coming period of time of 77s, or depending on your translation, 70 weeks. Now in the Bible, this this idea of weeks in, in this way is often referring to years. So there would be weeks of years. So 70 times seven would be 490 years. My math A level has stayed with me all this time. Um, so we have 490 years and they could be taken literally Or they may be taken symbolically um, as an expression of the apocalyptic literature to which this number is part. But either way, Gabriel says that there will be seventy sevens by which a few things will have happened. Verse 24, transgression and sin will be ended. Righteousness will be brought in. Vision and prophecy will be sealed up or or ended or found its goal. And the most holy place in the temple will be anointed. Now, as christian believers reading this this must point to the work of jesus it must do only jesus does these things through his death he ends sin and brings in righteousness he is god's final word according to hebrews he is the the climax and goal of all prophecy and vision and though he doesn't anoint the holy place in the temple actually the temple finds its own fulfillment in jesus himself Jesus would be the one who in the Gospel said that one greater than the temple is here. So we have here a prediction pointing forward to the work of Jesus. Then Gabriel splits up the 77s into 69 sevens that he then splits up again. And this marks the period of time between the decree for Jerusalem being restored and it says the coming of an anointed one. So this would seem to be the time between the decree of Cyrus, which happened to to rebuild Jerusalem, and the birth and work of Jesus. So as per Daniel's prayer, Jerusalem is rebuilt, it says, with streets and a trench. Daniel's been praying for the restoration of Jerusalem and God is going to restore it as promised. However, it says that there will be an anointed one who will be put to death or cut off. And Jerusalem and the temple will suffer devastation again. Then the final seven is interpreted variously. So some will say that it leads up to the end times before Jesus returns. And so we are still awaiting that fulfilment. Other scholars think it leads up to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, not long after Jesus' death, which was done by the Roman general Titus. But either way, the main idea for Daniel in this vision is as follows. Yes, as promised by God, Jerusalem will be rebuilt. There will be an end to to the exile. However, Jerusalem and the temple will suffer destruction again. So you should not put your final hope In those things rather it is the anointed one the Messiah who is the ultimate cause for hope he will die but he will bring in righteousness and an end to sin those things that Daniel yearns for so much now you can imagine this being quite a perplexing thing for Daniel to hear He was hoping for the restoration of his nation return from exile, but God kind of points him even beyond that. Daniel's prayer would find its true hope actually not in Jerusalem, not in the nation being restored, but in the Messiah. And the same is true today. You know, I've been really struck by the way the media presented the announcement of the COVID vaccine when that was being developed and and seen as successful, newspaper headlines all over the nation uh, celebrated the great news. Uh, One newspaper, The Daily Record had a headline as this, light at the end of the tunnel. The Daily Telegraph said, a great day for humanity. Another paper just simply said this, hope at last. And you could sense, couldn't you, the collective sigh of relief we all had uh, the news of the coming vaccine. And after a hard lockdown season, we have seen rightly, I think, this vaccine as a a gift from God. We've been praying for lockdown to end, for the vaccine to be successful and administered widely and quickly. We pray for the NHS to have the resource it needs. We pray for schools to reopen and for the government to act wisely. We pray for all these things, and and, and this is good and, and, and biblical in many respects. But like Daniel, we must always remember that all of these good things we pray for are not our ultimate hope. They are not light at the end of the tunnel in an absolute sense. You see, Daniel was looking for his hope in the return from exile, But it took Gabriel to kind of, as it were, put a hand on his shoulder and point beyond what he was looking at, beyond that, to a cross on a hill. You see, it was only through the death of the Messiah that true hope would be found. And that is still true. You see, only Jesus Christ holds in his hands the power to solve the problems of this world. see, any vaccine, as good as it may be, cannot stop death. You and I are still going to die. Politicians cannot make all things new in society whoever they are. Coming out of lockdown will be a blessing but it will not be utopia. There will be many more trials and struggles to come on the other side and blessings too. But it is Jesus who holds the power to deal and control sin, death, and righteousness. As the anointed one, he was put to death on a cross and it's through that that he subdued sin. He atoned for wickedness and he brought in everlasting righteousness. He can deal with sin, he can deal with guilt and death in a way that none of these other things can. Our sins can be forgiven. Death has lost its sting. Because of his work. The new creation, utopia, if you will, is a certainty, but only because of him. And he promises it in the age to come. Now, that is true hope. That is true hope. See, friends, if we let our prayers reflect the same values and levels of hope that our culture has in the things that they put their hope in, if we utter the same things as can be found in the hearts of the world, but just tag on a in Jesus' name, amen, at the end, we sell ourselves short. Jesus offers us a better hope than that. He invites us to put our trust in him. And we can pray boldly to his Father, knowing that we are secure and that we have a glorious future, a true hope guaranteed. So yes, we pray for good governments. We pray for decent vaccines. We pray for an end to lockdown. But in our hearts, there is always going to be a footnote next to such prayers that says, gaining these things is not my everything. My hope and my neighbour's hope is in Christ and Christ alone. So really, hoping in Christ is the key to a healthy prayer life. And all the things that we've said already, when you see the hope he offers you, the glory of who he is and what he's done, that is gonna fuel your prayers. That is gonna make you pray healthily. You'll see his words in the Bible as precious and so you will respond to them in your prayers. You will feel free to be humble and take ownership of all your sins because you know that in him there is forgiveness. There is an end to sin and righteousness available. And you'll be so enraptured by what he's done for you that you will love him and you will pray god centered prayers because you want him to be honoured. Now, after all this, you might come to a passage like this and just feel a bit deflated. You may have sensed in some ways all the things that your prayers should have, but don't. And you just may feel a little bit exposed. Well, me too, got to be honest with you. But perhaps then our failings here are just more things that we can openly confess and bring to the Lord, knowing that he will forgive us. We have a God who has already dealt with our sins and he welcomes humble sinners with open arms. Let's pray, shall we? Lord God, we want to be people who pray according to your will. We want to be people who pray healthy prayers, not selfish ones. But we want to be like Daniel. Lord, we want to show humility. We want to show a concern for your honour. We want to pray in response to your word. And we don't want to put our hopes in things that everyone else put their put their hopes in when we know that we have something better and Jesus offers us something better. So Lord, please change us. Please forgive us, Father, for where we have send against you individually and corporately as a church please show us where we've fallen short and Lord help us to see Jesus afresh in all his glory as a true fuel for our prayers may our prayer lives Lord improve may they reflect more and more um, your character your will your goals and priorities and as we see what you've done for us in Jesus may you make us just more affectionate towards you. Draw us closer to you Lord. May we experience your love more and more and be changed by it. In Jesus name. Amen.